Lord, this morning we ask very simply, humbly, Lord, that you would speak to us in and through your word, for we are listening. We pray that you would make your word come alive in our hearts. Lord, we want not just head knowledge today, we want to be transformed. And so use your spirit, use this passage to do just that, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, throughout history, many have been preoccupied with wanting to hear from God, wanting to experience God, wanting to hear him speak. In fact, there are countless stories of people claiming uh, to have encountered God in this way. In fact, a recent Gallup poll uh, reported that 23% of all Americans, so almost one in four, have claimed to have heard God speak to them or have seen a vision in response to a prayer. Now, whether or not these accounts are true, whether or not they actually heard from God is a different discussion. The the point is, is that many are wanting to hear God speak. But why? Why why do people want to hear God speak so badly? Well, it's because our God is a God who communicates. There are many accounts of God doing just that all throughout the Bible even. Here, Here are just a few examples. God spoke to Noah in the building of the ark in Genesis 6. God spoke to Jacob in a vivid dream, Genesis 28. God spoke to Moses out of a burning bush, Exodus chapter 3. God spoke to the prophet Elijah, not through an earthquake or great wind or fire, but a still small voice. God spoke to Job and all of these prophets. He spoke to Peter and to Paul. We have all these accounts of God speaking. God is a speaking God. He's one who communicates. And sometimes we look at some of those examples and we think to ourselves, man, that would be so nice if God could just speak audibly to us today. I wonder if you've ever thought that. If you've walked through a season where you had to make a very important decision or you're walking through a troubling time and you thought, man, it would be so much easier if God could just speak audibly to me. Or if God could just maybe send me a text message or drop a note in the mailbox laying out specifically what I need to do or to reassure me or to encourage me. We want God to speak to us. That's a good desire to have. But we need to understand how God speaks to his people today. See, while we believe that God can do anything at any time, while we believe that we shouldn't put him in a box, at the same time, The fact is, is that the canon of Scripture is closed. We have the full and final revelation of God here in the Bible and through His Son. And so my particular position is that God no longer speaks to His people audibly as the normative means of how He communicates. But at the same time, we serve a God who communicates. We serve a God who is not mute, who is not silent. We have a God who has spoken. Now that's why when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 3 in these first couple of verses and what's being described here, it's very alarming at what's going on in this time period if you are part of God's people. Verse 1 opens and we see the fifth description of Samuel once again ministering to the Lord. We'll see a sixth occurrence and the final occurrence or description of Samuel kind of ministering and growing at the end of this chapter. But but notice in verse 1 how the scene is set. It says, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. God was silence. 
Now that phrase there, there was no frequent vision. This should be understood synonymously with the word of the Lord was rare because in this time period, visions were a means by which God would speak to his prophets and to his people. In fact, even in Samuel's encounter here of God verbally speaking, it's actually called a vision in verse 15, which we'll get to in a moment. But right off the bat here, what we need to understand is that what's being described here, this is a disastrous description of, of the setting in which God's people were living. The God's people, they, they fall apart when they are left without the word of God to direct them. Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. God's silence seriously hinders and curtails the life of his people. Especially in the Old Testament, God's silence was a demonstration of his judgment. It was a demonstration, a sign of him punishing his people. You can look at Psalm 74 that makes that clear. Even in the prophet Amos uh, just two centuries after Samuel, uh, Amos prophesied a threat against God's people because of their continued rebellion. And notice the way that, that this threat is communicated in Amos chapter 8. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, but not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord." They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Again, two centuries after Samuel, Amos is predicting and prophesying God will send a great judgment upon his people and it will be a famine, but not of physical food, but of spiritual food. God's silence is a demonstration of his judgment and that's exactly what we are finding here in the time of Samuel in chapter 3. God was not pleased, and so he is silence. Now, moving into verses 2 and 3, these verses continue to, to set the scene for us, but it also contains some helpful contrast and even layers of symbolism. Notice verse 2, Eli is described as having failing eyesight. Okay, so his ability to see physically is growing dim. And notice where he's positioned. He's lying down, not near the tabernacle, but he's lying down in his own place. Now look at verse 3. It says that the lamp of God or the lampstand that's in the tabernacle there had not yet gone out. It's also growing dim, but it's not gone out yet. Now notice where young Samuel is. Samuel is lying down near the tabernacle. He's near the, the presence of God. Now, let's connect the dots for a moment. What's going on here? Well, th this lampstand, the lamp of God in verse 3, the fact that it's not gone out yet tells us uh, that it's during the, the nighttime here that, that this setting is taking place. For the lamp that was in the tabernacle was supposed to be lit from the evening until the morning, according to Exodus chapter 27, Leviticus chapter 24. Now, there's a time in which this house and, and the, the lampstand will go out, but not yet. The fact that it's still flickering, though dimly, is communicating that there's still hope. Uh, in addition, I believe that there's symbolism here even with the physical condition of Eli. You know, we're told again, Eli's eyesight was also growing dim. Now, that's not just a random detail in the narrative, in the story here. 
Eli's physical condition is a reflection of his spiritual reality. That Eli, his, his physical eyesight, he, he was struggling to see the light of day, but he was also struggling to see spiritually the light of God's word. Now, I think even the different locations of Eli and Samuel is also significant. Eli's lying down in his own place. It's Samuel, though, who is near the tabernacle, the, the dwelling place of the Lord. We find here uh, Eli's uh, apathy and indifference toward the things of the Lord yet again, comparing that to Samuel's dedication to God, his willingness and desire to hear and listen from, uh, from God. And what we see here in just these first couple of verses is that Eli's darkness was deep, both physically and spiritually. And as a result, God had been silent. But all of that is about to change. Remember, the lampstand had not yet gone out. God has not abandoned his people. He has not forgotten them. There's still hope. Well, with the scene now set, I think it's clear that a movement of the Lord is about to occur. Eli's failing physical health and spiritual condition is apparent. This flickering light of the lampstand has been noted. The physical placement of Samuel near the presence of the Lord, all of that is screaming that God is about to do something. And he's not about to do something quiet and behind the scenes like we've noticed over the last couple of chapters. No, God is about to do something loud. He's about to do something big. Verses 4 through 10, we will learn of a new messenger of the Lord, a new prophet. This is a new day for God's people. Verse 4, it finally happens. God finally speaks, and he calls Samuel. That's interesting. He's actually going to do this four times in this passage, and we're going to learn why in just a moment. But speaking, God's voice, God's calling here is a dominant theme in this chapter. In fact, verses 4 through 10 alone, the Hebrew word for call shows up 11 different times. God is starting to speak again. Let's see if God's people can hear. Notice how Samuel responds in verse 4. Here I am. It's immediate. It's quick. It's fast. But it's not to God. It's to Eli. He goes to Eli. He's like, hey, did you call me? What do you need? Do you need something? And Eli's like, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And then it happens again in verse 6. Eli or Samuel hears his name being called, but he runs again to Eli and not to God. So Eli gives him the same exact response. Go back to bed. This is just like my night last night in my household. Kids running to our room, wanting this, wanting that. Go back to bed. You know, parents, you know exactly what's going on. You do not need that third snack. Get back to bed. Samuel is confusing God's voice for Eli's voice. But all that is about to change. We learn more, though, of why, that, why that's the case, why it takes him a few times to understand what's going on. Verse 7 tells us why. It says, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now, this is very odd, considering all that we've learned about Samuel so far. Samuel, time and time again, is, is portrayed as ministering to the Lord. He's growing in favor uh, from God and, and, and people. Furthermore, this is a similar phrase that's used to describe the, uh, Eli's two wicked sons. Chapter 2, verse 12, they did not know the Lord. But there's one big difference. 
One huge difference, and it's the word yet. Love the word yet all throughout the scripture, but this time, this is very significant. It says Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Meaning, the ignorance of God that Eli's sons possess was an expression of their defiance against God. They had rejected the Lord. They had this willful rebellion. This is in contrast to Samuel, whose knowledge of the Lord, God had not yet called him, had not yet spoken to him, had not yet revealed himself in this way. But again, all of that is changing right here and right now. Verses 8-9, God calls him a third time. And now the, uh, the elder uh, uh, Eli understands what's happening here. He's, he's starting to figure out, Samuel's not just hearing things, something significant is happening. So notice he instructs Samuel, when the Lord calls you again, respond this way. Say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And sure enough, a fourth time the Lord calls, but this time he came and he stood. And this time he actually calls Samuel twice. He says, Samuel, Samuel. Now, if you know your Bibles, this should remind you of something. This is very, very similar to how God called Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. Through the burning bush, God says, Moses, Moses. And that's important because there is a link here that is happening. God is calling Samuel into the office of a prophet and will use Samuel just like he used Moses as a prophet, a messenger, to speak through to his people. What's really interesting is that according to even Exodus chapter 25, God gave Moses specific instructions as it relates to the tabernacle, how to build it, how to construct it. And in Exodus 25, there are specific instructions of how to, of how to structure the lampstand that was in the tabernacle, the same lampstand that's, that's central here in this scene. And the description, according to Exodus 25, is that that lampstand is to be like a tree, but a tree made of gold. And scholars believe, they pointed this out, that a tree of gold looks very, very similar to a burning bush. So notice the link here. What we see here is that with Samuel, just like Moses, who's being called, who is called by God, saying, Moses, Moses, out of a burning bush, so too now God is calling Samuel, Samuel, by not a burning bush, but something that looks very similar to a burning bush, a lampstand in the tabernacle. Even the fact that God appears instead of just his voice tells us of the significance of this calling. Samuel responds just as Eli instructed. He says, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Now, throughout chapters 2 and 3, there's been uh, an important theme that I've not yet pointed out. It's the theme of hearing, the theme of Listening. Maybe you've seen that in chapters two and now three, but there's been a, a contrast over the last couple of chapters between Samuel's ability to hear and listen to the Lord compared to Eli and his son's lack of hearing or even what they hear. Chapter two, verse 22 and 23, Eli had heard their reports concerning his son's sinful behavior. In addition, chapter 2, verse 25, the sons of Eli did not listen. They did not hear their father's rebuke. Even in chapter 3, 
Is it Eli who's hearing the voice of the Lord or is it Samuel? No, it's Samuel who hears the voice of the Lord. And now you get to verse 10 and it's Samuel who declares to the Lord, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. It's an important point here in this chapter. God has a new messenger, a new prophet. He will not only use Samuel to, uh, to begin formally the office of a prophet, but now God finally has a man who is listening, a man who hears his word and who will obey. Now Samuel's first great test is what happens next. Here the word of the Lord comes to Samuel in verses 11 through 21. As God calls those to be his messengers, the, the word, the message is often very polarizing. Sometimes when we think as God you know, has called and raised up prophets, today he's called and raised up pastors or preachers or teachers of the, of the word, sometimes we think that those individuals just get to stand up and communicate only encouraging and, and you know, uplifting things and happy things, right? as if they're taking Caleb into the pulpit. And while there's an element in which that's true, there, there's a degree of encouraging and edifying God's people, oftentimes the message or the word of the Lord contains heavy truth, truth that oftentimes people do not want to hear. Now, why? Well, why are they declaring all of that? Why did I even share the message last week? Well, it's because faithfulness is what's key. Faithfulness is, what is, is what's important to declare, thus saith the Lord, and not to change one word. No matter how convicting, no matter how heavy that word is, the faithful messenger of the Lord will say, thus saith the Lord. Here is what God has to say, and the word does the work. Now, Samuel will be put to the test here as his first assignment as the new prophet is to pronounce judgment over Eli to his face. There's no passive-aggressive text message he could have sent to Eli. There's no email. This is a face-to-face -face declaration of judgment. Verse 11, God tells Samuel what he wants him to do but, and, and what, what he wants him to declare. But notice the, the theme of hearing once again. God says, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Now that word for tingle actually shows up throughout the Old Testament. In the Hebrew, it can be translated as, uh, uh, as lips quivering. And we see that uh, most frequently when a prophet or a man of God pronounces judgment over someone or over a group of people. You see that in 2 Kings uh, 21, verse 12, Jeremiah 19, verse 3. But what God is saying here in verse 11 is that he is, he's about to do something so big that it is of national significance. Well, what's he about to do? Well, verses 12 and 14, we learn that God will now fulfill what he had said through that unnamed prophet in chapter 2. This unnamed prophet that declared judgment over Eli, over his household, because Eli did not restrain or discipline his wicked sons. And their sin will not be atoned for by sacrifice. Why? Well, we looked at last week, they held with contempt that sacrifice. They, they had rejected the only means available in order for their sins to be atoned and to be forgiven. Man, this is, this is the first task given to, given to Samuel. And again, just, just kind of put yourself in his shoes for a moment. Again, we need to see the humanity 
in this passage. We don't know exactly how old Samuel is at this point in time. Verse 1 tells us he's a boy. Don't know the exact age. But just put yourself in his shoes just for a moment. This is your first task. And you are being assigned to pronounce ultimate judgment over not only the most powerful and famous family in all of Israel, but to your own adoptive father. Think about that for a moment. To look your father in the eyes, the father who has raised you, cared for you, taught you, has done all these things for you, to look him in the eyes and to declare ultimate judgment to his face. This is a, a heavy, a heavy call for Samuel. And, and we notice that he feels the weight of it in verse 15. He feels the weight of this heavy message because he just lays there until morning, right? likely processing everything that he just experienced. It's kind of a crazy experience for him. And he's also probably trying to process, how can I be faithful in delivering this message to my own dad? But then notice what else verse 15 says. It says, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. I think there's more layers of symbolism here with the doorway or the doorpost to the, the tabernacle area. We've seen this actually a few times so far. Uh, chapter 1, verse 9, uh, we were first introduced to Eli where he was sitting at the doorpost. Right? That's where he confused the desperate prayers of Hannah for drunkenness. In addition, it's the entrance to the house of the Lord, these doorways where those women who were serving God, those women that, that Eli's son sinfully slept with. Chapter 2, verse 22, he turned, they turned the house of the Lord into a brothel. And so neither Eli nor Eli's sons had guarded the house, the, the doorway uh, of the Lord faithfully. But now we have Samuel here. Samuel, whose very birth was actually prayed for at the doorway by Hannah, who now stands and he opens the doorway of the house of the Lord, and he declares a new spiritual birth for the nation of Israel. Samuel will be the faithful gatekeeper over the house of God. Samuel, who, verse 16, is afraid, again, to share this heavy message to Eli, He's likely beginning to connect the dots. Eli almost twists his arm to get the full truth of what the Lord wanted him to hear, and Samuel was faithful. Faithfully delivered this hard and heavy message, this word to Eli. We notice verse 18. We see Eli's response here, and this is an example in Scripture where I, I wish we could hear it spoken out loud. Like, I wish we could just not just read it, but hear Eli say these words in his own voice just to get the inflection. All right? He says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. But you, know, you have to wonder, is he saying this as an act of trust? Like humbly accepting God's just verdicts? He's saying, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Because if so, this is maybe his greatest moment so far. Or is he saying this in an act of despair or even apathy? Is he saying something like, well, it's the Lord, you know, let him do whatever seems good to him. And you have to wonder if it's more of that type of response because of what we know about Eli 
so far. He's been a man of indifference, a man of apathy, a man who couldn't really hear the voice of the Lord anymore. Last time he heard from God was from that unnamed prophet pronouncing judgment, so he likely knew this was coming. But then verse 19, we see the sixth and the final description of Samuel's growth. Again, the intentional contrast of his growing ministry with Eli and his son's fallen ministry. Again, that's setting us up for a climactic moment in chapter 4. But then it says that the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. Now, whose words? Is it God's or is it Samuel's? Who's the him there? Well, yes, it's both. That Samuel, according to verse 20, is now officially a prophet. So he will speak God's words and not one of them will fail. Verse 20, word spreads. Notice all of Israel now knows that Samuel is God's prophet. This is where geography matters. Dan is at the very north point and Beersheba is at the very south end. So this is another way of saying that all of God's people now know that God is no longer silence. God is speaking again. The word of the Lord is here. It's quite an amazing chapter. To go from verse 1, a wordless nation, to now all the way at the end, the word of the Lord is here, and it is spreading, and it is moving. Hope has returned. It's a beautiful chapter, a beautiful transitional chapter that we see in 1 Samuel. Well, before we finish up, I want to bring to bear a couple of application points as I have over the last uh, couple of weeks. I want to try to answer the question, how might we apply this passage, this chapter to our lives? Well, here's the first one and the most obvious one is that God's word is the primary mouthpiece of God. Therefore, flood your life with it. Flood your life with it. I'll unpack why I chose that word flood in a moment, but man, one of the main points is the necessity for God's people to put God's word as the focus, as the primary priority of their lives. And we, see, we saw this all throughout this chapter, in particular towards the end of this chapter, we see just the centrality of God's word, even kind of dipping into chapter four, verse one, it's just all over the place. And I did use that word flood intentionally because I think far too often, God's people, our, our hearts are spiritually dehydrated. If we were honest, if we just called a spade a spade, so often, our hearts, they feel parched. They feel dry. That inwardly, they're, they're, they're craving, they're, they're thirsty for the living word found in God's word. But far too often, we just give it little sprinkles here and there. And that's why I think chapter 3, verse 1, this first verse really stuck out to me. It says that the word of the Lord was rare. And I wonder in what ways could that be true of your own life today? The word of the Lord is rare, not because you don't have access to it, but because the word of the Lord is not central in your life. And please don't, don't misunderstand me. This is, not, this is not a guilt trip from your pastor. This is not a message of, man, if you're not reading your Bible, you're not a good Christian. Guilt, that message of guilt doesn't change anybody. Guilt is a horrible motivator 
but oh, does it enslave. No, that's not the application here. The application here and my prayer for you is that you would be convinced, utterly convinced, that there is power in God's word. That, that this book is unlike any other book on the face of the planet. That it is here that we learn and see Jesus. That it's here that we see about God's love for us. It's here that we see about Jesus' kindness and Jesus' faithfulness and the majestic power of King Jesus. That I want you to, to flood your life with it. I want you to not just view this book as, as something on your to-do list. That after you read, just check it off, move on with your day, spiritually pat yourself on the back. No, I want you to want more of God in your life to the point where this is flooding your life with the living God. And I love that image of a flood. Like there's just more water. Water just keeps coming and coming and coming. You can't stop it. Like that's what I want for you as it relates to God's word that you cannot get enough of the Bible in your life. I think that is a direct application of what we see in this passage of God's word moving, God's word speaking, that we hear from God here in this book. Now, I, I know the reality is some are here and you're in a, a dry period spiritually, perhaps. I know that's likely the case. It happens from time to time. You're just spiritually maybe in a rut wondering what, what should I do? Maybe you're here and you feel far from the Lord. Like there's, there's distance and you want somehow, some way God to just reassure you, encourage you. Maybe you're walking through just a heavy trial right now in this season and, and you just so desperately just want God to audibly speak to you. And, and in your mind, that would just change everything. Look, if you're in one of those categories, can I just remind you that God has spoken, that God does speak, that you want God to speak to you, my encouragement, open up this book and read it out loud. That's how God speaks to his people, that, that everything we need for life and godliness is found in the word of the Lord. And so if you think hearing God audibly would change, just open up this book and start reading it and you will hear the voice of the Lord. And you might say, wow, Chris, that sure does sound overly simplistic. Just read your Bible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Read your Bible. Be a Christian. Be a follower of Jesus. Understand that, that he has given us the, the greatest gift in the world outside of his son, the living word of God right here in the written word. Be a faithful believer and open up this book. Don't allow this book to collect dust on your bookshelf at home. So yeah, make this primary. Make it your focus. Center your life around getting in the word of God. And you have to think through, what did God's people think during this time period? If you think I'm being overly simplistic, remember what God's people were going through in 1 Samuel 3. This was a period of crisis. They had no leader, Everyone's doing whatever was right in their own eyes. Spiritual leaders are corrupt. Philistines are dominating them. God has been silent. This is an awful time to be an Israelite. What's God's solution? What does God do to bring resolution to his people? Does he, does he launch some sort of practical five-step program for him? Does God reorganize the leadership structure? Does God raise up some 
charismatic communicator with unbelievable leadership skills. No. God brings his word. God sends his word. He raises up an ordinary boy to be his mouthpiece. Because what God's people need most in this world is his life-transforming, powerful, sufficient word. It's the same word that according to Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth from God's mouth. That it's the same word that according to Hebrews 1, God upholds the universe by the power of his word. It's it's the same word that tells us in Isaiah 40 that the grass withers, the flowers fall, but it's the word of God that endures forever. It's the same word that according to Psalm 19, it revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It restores joy to the heart. It brings light to our eyes. It's the same word that Hebrews 4 declares. It's living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It discerns the intentions of the heart. It's the same word that Jesus declares in Matthew 4. Man will not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God in this book. Flood your life with it. Secondly, another application for us is that the fact is distractions drown out God's word, therefore remove them. Man, let's stop playing around with distractions and things that get in the way of us spending time in his word, because that's what we saw from Israel's leadership all throughout these first couple chapters. They're preoccupied with just about everything else besides listening and obeying God's word. They were distracted. And again, just by way of application, verse one, the word of the Lord was rare. In what way is that true for you today and why? If the word is rare, let's get underneath about why that's the case. Do you have distractions in your life that are pulling you away from time in his word? Let me suggest a couple of big ones, a couple of popular ones. First is busyness, busyness and noise. How often have you heard it? Maybe have you said it that, man, I just don't feel like I've got any time to spend in the Word, to immerse myself in the Word. I just feel like I'm too busy, I'm too overwhelmed, I've got this thing, I've got that thing. And so often we just give God our leftover, leftover time, leftover energy, not our first and our best. And look, the reality is, at the end of the day, no one is ever too busy. At the end of the day, we all make time for that which we consider to be important. You make time for that which you value. Look at me. You have time. I don't care what position you have at work. I don't care the ages of your kids. I don't care what you have on your plate. You have time to immerse yourself in the Bible. And there's no excuse not to. There's no excuse to prioritize something other than his word in your life. You know, sometimes we like to beat around the bush a little bit, you know, say, well, I'm just in a busy season. I feel overwhelmed. I've got this thing or that thing. Look, maybe some of us just need to hear it. You have, you have plenty of time. We can check how much time people are on social media just to 
prove that that's true. Now, there could be a sense in which life feels overly full. There could be a sense in which there's so much noise going on that it drowns out God's word. So you might be spending time, 5, 10, 15 minutes, but what tends to happen is that you forget what you read before you drop off the kids at school or before that first meeting. It's not resounding in your heart. So you have to ask the question, why is that the case? I, I thought this was living and active. Why is this not transforming me? Well, consider how much noise you have in your life. Consider how inundated you are just constantly with, with noise and busyness and rushing and in a hurry from this thing to that thing to what the dominant voice is not the word of God. It's all these other things. And I think that is a dominant lie for us is, is to think that, yes, this is true, but it doesn't transform. That, that will lead you into reading it, but, but not to rehearsing it throughout the day. Unplug from the noise. The second, I think, common reason is just apathy. Uh, you know, pulling a, a card from, from Eli's book, just being indifferent, not, not caring, not believing the necessity of being in his word and just giving ourselves over to laziness. A, a third one is sinful behavior and attitudes, right? Sin like jealousy and anger and bitterness and lust and covetousness. All of these things, they're not just sins against God. What they do, they drown out God's word from our hearts. They, they crowd out the truth. So yeah, you can read this at 10 minutes in the morning, but if you've got lingering sin, you're not going to be able to hear the voice of the Lord. It crowds it out. The more often you choose to sin, the less willing you will be to hear from God. So the action step here, identify those distractions and remove them. Make space in your heart and your life for God's word. All right, finally here, I got to move quickly. The third one here is to understand that just like last week, where we saw kind of the priesthood, how Jesus is the greater priest, we see how this passage actually points forward to Jesus. That God has spoken most clearly in and through Jesus, so worship him. You look at verse 20, God has now installed a new prophet, Samuel, and this will begin a long line of prophets that come after him that God uses to speak his word in and through. And yes, Samuel is faithful, absolutely. But we need to understand is that there is one who is more faithful. There is a prophet who is the greater prophet. He is the greatest prophet. He is the perfect prophet, and his name is Jesus. And don't misinterpret me as thinking of saying that he's a prophet as if he's only a prophet. No, he's, the, he's also the son of God. But according to Hebrews 1, it says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Notice what this is saying about Jesus. Jesus is described as God's climactic and definitive act of communication. Long ago, God's communicating through all these means, including prophets. But now, God has most clearly and most definitively spoken through Jesus. So we can hear God. We can know God as we know Jesus. So just an application of this, as you're reading the word, don't miss Jesus as you're reading the word. 
couple of questions to ask yourself as you're reading the text. In what way does this passage reveal or point to Jesus? It's a great question to ask, any passage. And then secondly, in what ways does this passage inflame my affections for Jesus? Just to make sure you're not missing Christ in the word. Again, this passage, I think, is pointing forward to Jesus. He is the greater prophet. For unlike Samuel, Jesus did not just declare the word of God. Jesus is the living word. That in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the very embodiment of everything that God has spoken. And unlike Samuel, Jesus is not only the living word. He not only declared the word of God to God's people, Jesus died for his people. That unlike any other prophet, Jesus got up on a cross and he died in the place of sinners, taking our debts, taking our penalty for our rebellion, for our sin, and he died in our place. He rose again three days later. He offers forgiveness and salvation for all who trust in the name of Jesus alone. You know what's interesting about that? You know what Jesus said on the cross as he was hanging there? He actually recited Psalm 22. As he's hanging there, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's interesting when you think, in, when you think about that, because as Jesus is hanging there, dying for our sins, he felt forsaken by God. As he died in our place, he experienced the silence of the Lord. Why? Jesus experienced the silence of the Lord so that you and I wouldn't have to. So you and I can forevermore hear God's word loudly, clearly, and continually through this book and through the person and work of Jesus. So just like in the time of Samuel, so too now, God leads his people by His word, God is not silent. And his people listen, they believe, and they obey. Let us be that kind of people. Let's pray together. Lord, we do praise you for your powerful and living word. We thank you that your word even promises that not one of your words will return void. It will accomplish its purpose. So Lord, even in this chapter, even as we looked at events that occurred 3,000 years ago, would you make the book alive in our hearts and lives? Would you convict and stir? Make us doers of your word and not just listeners? Help us to obey what you have said. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.